Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Are Canada and Australia collaborators or competitors under the new CPTPP? Australia's High Commissioner to Canada answers that question and more on today's show. We also have our tech panel coming up in the latter half. Up for discussion is Facebook, which has just turned 15, Slack going public, as well as Apple's fight against Google and Facebook. We have two Business Excellence Series events coming up centered around making smart financial decisions. On February 21st, we have a panel of experts who will discuss the due diligence required when buying a business. They'll look at all the little things, all the big things that you need to know and should look out for. I'll be hosting that one and I'm looking forward to it, so hope you can join us. And once you've mastered how to buy a business, you can join us on February 28th to learn how to successfully exit business. Our annual Retirement Ready panel will walk through how to retire well and wealthy. Both events are at the Shangri-La Hotel. Both start at 3.30 p.m. in the afternoon, and more information is available on both events as well as all of our events at BIV.com events. You're listening to BIV Today. Trade between Canada and Australia dates back more than 100 years, but the CPTPP is really the first free trade agreement that formally links both economies. It's been in effect for just over a month now for the first countries to ratify the deal. And I'm joined today by Natasha Smith, Australia's High Commissioner to Canada, to talk about some of those opportunities in depth. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. We talk a lot about about the similarities between Canada and Australia. Are we competitors under this new deal or is there an opportunity to collaborate? I think we're both. Uh, and one of the things that I think is is very special about the Australia-Canada relationship is how similar we are. And that does extend, frankly, to our economies and to the sorts of things we produce. And that does mean that in some cases we're competitors, but it also offers a lot of opportunity for collaboration and for working together, both bilaterally. So between, and this is where the CPTPP will uh, allow a lot more growth, I think, and, and, and strengthen the kind of bilateral Lateral trade and investment. But I also see it as really opening up uh, the region to an opportunity for Canadian and Australian businesses to actually work together and to work together into big third country markets and and perhaps even for Canadian companies to see Australia as a a platform for actually expanding into the Indo-Pacific. Let's talk about that a little bit more in depth because Australia, of course, would have a greater competitive advantage knowing the region more so than, say, Canadian businesses. What do you think Australia could offer in that kind of regional relationship with Canada and what do you think Canada can offer? Yeah, I think you're right that some Australian companies will know the region uh, better and and have an established relationship there, and what and that's something that we can then uh, work together with Canadian companies to uh, to leverage that uh, as uh, as we look at opportunities to work in consortia or in joint ventures. I think what. Um, what we then what we offer also i think for canada is uh, not just that that knowledge of the region but also a, a very stable um and prosperous economy to come and use as that platform and you know australia is entering our 28th year of of uh, of successive economic growth so it's it's we're a good market full stop but we're also a market that that is a platform and i think the canadian companies um uh offer 
you know, increased investment, but also knowledge and expertise, some of which we might also have. But, um, you know, I think working together, particularly in big markets where, frankly, they're such big markets, there's plenty of space for both of us to be working together. In what sectors do you think we might see some of that collaboration? Look, I think there's there's traditional sectors and, and that's part of the bilateral relationship that, you know, food and beverage, um, certainly resources, minerals, um, and there's ways I think we could be working together there and and ways we can work in those sectors, but if you like, a, a bit further up the, the value chain. So um, some of the uh, technology, uh, you know, agri-tech uh, and, um, and the more uh, technical sides of mining, not just kind of the big resource management companies that we, we're used to. But also uh, in areas like fintech, biotech, and, and we're already seeing some of that between the two of us. Uh, and hopefully what we can then see is how that can lead to joint work in the region. A lot of attention with the CPTPP has to do with the, the near elimination of a lot of tariffs. Yep. In what ways is the CPTPP most significant, would you say, for Australia, be it on the tariff side or some of the other aspects of it? I think tariffs are important and, and, you know, like Canada, Australia um, is a trading nation and, you know, we owe a lot of our prosperity, frankly, to the fact that we are uh, a trading nation and and we believe in free trade and and, uh, are very outward looking. Um, And I think uh, that what – sorry, I've just lost my train of thought on that (laughs) – Yes, I think the the elimination of tariffs is an important one. Uh, Like Canada, Australia is a a trading nation and we owe a lot of our prosperity to that fact and to how outward looking we are. But in addition to uh, the the tariffs part of it, uh, another area that that I think is important is the recognition of qualifications between uh, Australia and Canada, for instance, because that's going to allow uh, our workers and particularly in some of the services areas to more easily work in for Canadians in Australia and Australians in Canada. So I think that's also an important part of it. And I think we also, in addition to kind of the, the nuts and bolts of what's in this agreement, the agreement itself, I think, is very symbolic and important. It's very much, in our view, the gold standard when it comes to free trade agreements. And therefore, it sort of sits there as part of, if you like, the rules-based order and uh, brings brings that sort of um, uh, mechanism into the Indo-Pacific and connects, you know, 11 countries that uh, I forget how many trillions of dollars, I think 13 trillion or something <laughs> of of uh, GDP um, uh, and a significant number of consumers uh, uh, connects it to get, it connects us all together through this agreement. So I think it's, it is the specific elements, you know, the reduction in beef tariffs, for instance, for Australian beef into Canada. Uh, but I think the agreement means something much bigger than, if you like, all its component parts as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, here in BC, we're considered Canada's gateway to Asia and in some extent, North America's gateway mm-hmm. to Asia. Mm-hmm. Looking at our province and the opportunities here, what might you see in terms of collaboration between BC and Australia? Yeah, I think, I mean, the the history of Australia and BC goes back, I think you said at the beginning, uh, a, long, a long way back. Uh, it goes right back to the sugar industry in the late 1800s into my home state, in fact, of, uh, of Queensland, where I think uh, it was uh, those sugar expo- exports into BC was where, where uh, some of our connections started. Um, and we have a lot of people-to-people links. Uh, I think there's there's almost an, uh, a sensibility to BC that, that reminds me very much of Australia 
Australia, I know my first trip here, I thought, wow, it is like it's very much an Asia-Pacific facing part of Canada and you feel that very, uh, very strongly and I think that's that's a great thing. Um, but I think, again, the same sort of opportunities that uh, I've talked about more broadly around particularly the tech technology areas so and we've already seen that we've seen that in biotech where we've got medical companies that are based in Vancouver that have now opened up offices in Sydney you've got the likes of Animal Logic uh, which is you know Peter Rabbit and uh, and <laughs> and other productions out of Animal Logic which uh, again is another great connection um, so, so there's kind of there's and then there's the more traditionals if you like of you know the food and beverage and the minerals and and resources sectors so I think that that that, um, that pattern, if you like, is the same for BC as it is for Canada at large. But what you see because of how, I think, how far ahead particularly Vancouver is on some of that technology work, um, you're seeing you're seeing that, those opportunities already and I think that's going to be a growth area and it's certainly where we're focusing where we help companies and we have um, we have an office here, uh, we have people who can help on trade and investment issues here and in Toronto and, and through our team in Ottawa. The agreements in place, you mentioned some of the resources available. What do you think is really needed now to make businesses aware of some of these opportunities and maybe, uh, at least on the Canadian side, a little bit bold Mm. and willing Mm. to maybe look at a part of the world that often gets put off to the side given our giant economic neighbor to the south? Well, I, I think, and I don't want to speak for the Canadian government, but I know Minister Carr is is now, he's not just the trade minister, he's the international trade diversification minister. And I think that's very powerful and says a lot. Um, and again, he, he, he describes the CPTPP or any free trade agreement as a bridge that governments build and it's then over to businesses to, if you like, walk across that bridge. And I think that is the challenge now is um, particularly given how big the US market is for Canadian companies uh, and how dominant it has been uh, to convince Canadian companies to think think differently. Um, but that's part of, I suppose, my job uh, and, uh, and, and colleagues. Uh, and one of the things we're doing this afternoon is a, a seminar on the CPTPP to kind of really uh, bring, bring the messages about the value of the agreement and, and what's on offer in the region to companies here in Vancouver. You're here in Vancouver today, as you mentioned, for that seminar and other meetings, I'm sure. What ultimately is your message to BC businesses? Look west. <laughs> uh, it's my it's my message uh, across Canada, but it's uh, it's one that resonates most strongly here. Is very much to look west. I mean, Asia is the economic powerhouse. You just have to look at the growing middle class in countries like China and India, but equally in Indonesia, in the Philippines, in Vietnam, um, enormous opportunities. It is going to be, and it, I think it already is, very much the the growth engine, if you like, for the global economy. And Canadian companies need to get a slice of that and, and should want to get a slice of that. And and I think I would encourage them to not only look to the region but to think about us as um, close friends and partners and look to the opportunities that there might be to work with Australian companies um, or to come to Australia and use us as a platform then to uh, a safe platform, if you like, to launch into um, the very dynamic Indo-Pacific region. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. That's Natasha Smith, Australia's High Commissioner to Canada. It's time now for our weekly tech panel. Joining me on the line from Toronto is Ali Pordad, CEO at Pro.
Progressa. And in studio here in Vancouver, Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society. Thank you both for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. First topic, believe it or not, Facebook has turned 15. I remember ignoring what felt like dozens of emails from friends saying, join your friends on Facebook. It felt like some kind of digital yearbook. It wasn't clear what it was. I'm now one of 2 billion plus people on the platform. Linda, how would you define the first 15 years of Facebook? Wow. When I looked through the timeline, it struck me. I'm not a big Facebook user barely use it at all. But it did strike me looking through the timeline that there's been a lot of cut and paste apologies from Facebook from the beginning of time to today. We're really sorry. We stole your data. We won't do it again. Oops. Just over and over. So I think it's been a tumultuous time. The next 15 years are going to be even crazier. But uh, difficult uh, way, difficult moment for us trying to figure out how Facebook fits into society, what we expect of it, uh, what we're willing to give up. What does it mean for our communication, our lives, our connections, and our privacy? What we expect of it is a good question to ask. Ali, I'll put that to you. After 15 years of a lot of privacy yeah. concerns, as Linda points out, what do you think we expect yeah. of Facebook now? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly we expect a higher standard now. I think uh, looking back 15 years, uh, you know, I think people will be in different camps. You know, I, I was an early adopter of Facebook myself. I remember I was probably the right generation to to sort of early adopt Facebook. I think I was using it right in, in university myself. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, logging onto the platform and, and really having no expectations and not not wondering about my data or my privacy at the time. And, and uh, you know, to be frank, I don't think they were thinking of those things either. I mean, I think it's pretty hard to imagine when you're sitting, uh, sitting in a dorm in Stanford or if you're out west and you move to Silicon Valley for the first time and you have no idea what you're getting yourself into, that your business is going to... Uh, be used by one and two users over the age of 13 and across the whole world. Uh, so it's it's um, very hard to plan for that. And I think, you know, I, I'm probably in the camp that I'll give them a pass on a lot of stuff, but certainly the standard has gone up for the next 15 years. Well, and there's, as I mentioned, more than 2 billion people who they can't give Facebook up. We're still on it despite all of the issues. What do you think the next 15 years, Linda, will hold for Facebook? What's going to be their greatest challenge? Well, their greatest challenge is going to be dealing with the slowed user growth, where they're going to run out of humans who can connect to the internet. So right. their user growth is going to slow. They're going to have to beef that up with the apps they are, they've already purchased, WhatsApp and Instagram, Bring roll those user bases into their business model. But what do they become when user growth isn't the metric they're driving towards? Uh, that'll be a challenge for them. And, and what happens if we decide as a society that we don't want them sharing our data, grabbing our data in the way that they are. So how does that uh, affect their relationship with their advertisers and with their users? So yep. figuring those pieces out and rolling that into uh, and maintaining the successful advertising business model they have is going to be another huge challenge for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, seen I, yeah I, 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 sorry, I was just going to add, I totally, I totally agree to that. Uh, and, and I would say that inevitably when companies reach this size, they have to start to look at uh, acquisition. I think that's, that's sort of how you grow from here. It's going to be very hard for Facebook to grow its users when there just isn't those users out there. If, if, unless China is going to open up its walls, which it doesn't seem like it will, uh, there won't be, there's not that many more countries with users uh, left to acquire. And so uh, it, it's going to probably have to go through acquisition. I would also add uh, another potential, just you know, something to think about for Facebook and its long-term vulnerabilities. 
Um, it's something that's sort of come up recently in the news, uh, and it's it's more of a Facebook, Google, uh, or Facebook, Apple. Um, uh, it sort of seems to be happening with both of them. There's sort of a a cold war happening right now behind the scenes that people maybe are not talking about, but this could become an issue for Facebook down the road. If you think about it, Facebook's revenue as an organization is almost entirely dependent on Apple's platform and Google's platform, their Android platform. So Facebook does not have its own phone. Facebook does not have its own computers. And entire, it's almost entirely every eyeball that's on a Facebook today is on an Apple or an Android phone. 93% on mobile coming from wow. Facebook. Yeah. And, and if you think about that, that's, that's actually potentially a very long-term vulnerability for them. You know, Microsoft found themselves in this spot, I would say about a decade ago, maybe maybe 15 years ago, when uh, just before they start, they launched the Xbox. Uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, but they found themselves in this exact same situation where, you know, all of their software was sitting on uh, PCs that were not, theirs and Apple computers that were not theirs. And they needed to find a way to uh, either through acquisition or innovation, uh, cement their ability to survive. And and, and today, Microsoft is, is uh, I think, the second most valuable business in the world. They've figured out a way to, to certainly um, to do that. Uh, but Facebook, I think, still has those vulnerabilities long term, and they need to probably in the short term, uh, not be as aggressive with the, the apples of the world and the uh, androids of the world and probably uh, need to be more careful with their users because they are vulnerable to those companies uh, in the short term. Yeah. And, and, you know, another area of concern is when the um, when the human editors had to come out of the equation for the news, uh, doing the trending news, and the algorithms took over is when Facebook fell apart and they had to remove the trending topics. And that's when all this right-wing conspiracy uh, elements really crept into the platform. Uh, as Facebook moves forward, and they're doing a huge research push into artificial intelligence, it's going to be really quite fascinating and important for everyone to watch. How are they integrating artificial intelligence into the way the platform is managing content and views and public opinion and all of this critical information flow? So I think that's another big uh, flag I would I would put on the next 15 years for Facebook. Mm. We've talked on yeah. the show about, say, EU regulations, kind of a world leading regulations when it comes to consumer data protection and privacy. Linda, do you think in the next 15 years, we could see some kind of a regulatory intervention that knocks Facebook to its knees? Or are we too far past that point? Well, the FTC is looking at a, the biggest fine of all time for Facebook after their 2011. Uh, they didn't follow through on what the FTC wanted them to do way back in 2011. Um, and But the biggest fine of all time from the FTC is probably going to be pennies in the bucket, much like, like the Google fine from the EU, right. 50 million euros, sort of who cares for Google. Facebook's big enough that these fines won't matter. So what's going to drive this data privacy concern into a place where our you know, consumers are happy. And Facebook had this uh, big tobacco moment when Zuckerberg went to the Hill and had to talk to the Senate. Um, but we need to have our big tobacco moment as consumers and realize that there's a role we are having to play here. You know, smoking is bad for you, so stop smoking. Giving up your data is bad for you, so perhaps figure out a way not to give up your data. We, we have a, a big role to play here. And and we can have regulation come into it to a point, but at some point we've got to step up and get a little smarter about what we're willing to give up for what price. Mm. 
we're morphing into our second topic, Ali, as you brought it up, and that's Apple disabling Facebook and Google internal apps, citing privacy violations. Ali, you mentioned this is a big vulnerability for Facebook that it relies so heavily on hardware from Apple and Google. Walk me through the implication of Apple's decision to do this. Oh, it's it's very hard to hypothesize because you you I'm, I'm, there's all kinds of stories floating around online as to what really could be going on here, uh, Haley, uh, between these companies. But uh, I mean, these are these are uh, these are companies that at the at the very root of it are all so big that they can really only I mean I'm I'm hypothesizing right now, but they could mm-hmm. they could really only grow through acquisition. Uh, so I think about things like uh, the competition potentially to buy Netflix. And if you think about who who would be a likely uh, likely company to acquire a Netflix, uh, it's likely Apple, uh, it's likely a Facebook, or it's likely a Google. And so these companies have a, a real vested interest in dominating one another and putting themselves in a in a more in a stronger financial situation than the other. Because at some point, this is the only way they're going to be able to grow is just to start to acquire other media companies. And so that's, you know, that's one hypothesis as to what could be going on. I mean, there's lots of other ones. I know that uh, Tim Cook and uh, Mark Zuckerberg are not uh, not the closest of uh, individuals and have publicly, uh, you know, publicly um, badmouthed one another. Uh, and they're not shy about doing it. So, you know, it could be personal. Um, but, you know, at, at, at this very point in time, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be in Facebook's shoes. I would rather be in Apple's or, or Google's because. At the, at the end of the day, they control they control the medium. Yeah, and I think Apple actually did a good shot across the bow to Android on this one. They shut down Google and Facebook for their complete disregard for the privacy settings that are required under the enterprise uh, developer agreement um, and said to them, you know, you guys can't do this. This is not the way Apple operates. And that's uh, what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone poke at the rest of the world where over on Android, this kind of app can be downloaded without problem. People are signing up and using these data collection apps without issues. So I think it's Apple also showing the world, reminding everyone again, that they are on the right side of history. They're trying to be when it comes to data protection. And they're letting everybody know we are not putting up with people who are trying to grab data where they're not supposed to from our devices. And we are going to ensure that developers follow the rules and give our customers the knowledge that we care about their privacy, whether they care or not so, to be debated perhaps at another time, but they need to be seen to be caring. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, you both mentioned how much Facebook needs Apple and Google. Do the Apples and the Googles of the world need companies like Facebook? Do they need collaborators who are going to use their platforms and their enterprise platforms and innovate, Linda? Can three. they only push so so, yeah, so far? Well, uh, three of the biggest apps in the App Store are uh, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. Yeah. Uh, Google's giving Apple a billion dollars a month to make um, Google search the default in Safari. So Apple needs them. Apple needs developers, but Apple also needs to keep control of its kingdom. And and that means it's got to make sure it's it's people in its kingdom are following its rules. So it's a real given. It's a real push and take, you know, World War Four has begun is what some people are saying here. Um, but sure Apple, has. yeah, Apple clearly saying we are the dominant player in this game, don't mess about with us. And we saw Google and Facebook quickly back down, which is an interesting place to be. 
in this World War Four scenario, are the consumers going to win, Ali, or are we going to lose? Is there competition and development and good innovations that come out of this, or is there just more concerns than than positives for consumers? No, I, I think the consumers are going to win. Uh, I think ultimately uh, content reigns supreme. It always will. And uh, Facebook is very well positioned uh, along those lines with obviously ownership and uh, WhatsApp and, and Instagram. Uh, I think Instagram is, is uh, if not, if, if it's probably of the three, the fastest growing platforms of the, of the three apps, Facebook, uh, Instagram and WhatsApp. I would think Instagram is, is the fastest growing. Um, so Facebook's very well positioned from that point of view. Uh, but again, um, you know, the, the recent trends have been to, to video online and, and with, uh, with um, uh, newer, obviously, uh, newer high-speed uh, high internets uh, on the horizon, I think there'll be more and more a trend to uh, mobile, uh, mobile uh, video. And, um, you know, I guess maybe all roads will point to a, a, net, a, you know, a Netflix acquisition very soon. Uh, but I think all of this is good for the consumer. At the end of the day, it's just going to uh, consolidate very large businesses that some of which are probably uh, playing a fine line right now uh, because they feel they have to. But once you know, if if, if a Netflix got ingested by a you know by an Apple, I think um, you know you you could you could uh, definitely rest assured the consumer is going to win win in that scenario. Right, and and people sort of grumble about Apple having such control over their devices. You're not allowed to download apps that don't come from the app store, uh, et cetera. Uh, but as a consumer, it's is it not good news that we have at least one company who is providing us with devices who is making a nod towards security mm. and keeping our data protected? If, if the world was all um, under the model of the Android operating system, we this would be a very different conversation we're having. So I think at the end of the day, it's it's good that this is happening. It's good, in my opinion, that Apple is winning this um, particular round of World War IV. Um, the the war rages on, perhaps, and they won this battle. But um, I'm glad Apple's well, there to protect my devices, and they're doing something I really don't feel like I want to do on a daily basis. I, yeah, I'll, I'll just add to, to Linda's point. I think they are winning the war right now, but... Uh, the winner of the war will be the winner, at least the winner of this version of the war, World War Four, will be the winner, the, the, the company that acquires Netflix. Uh, I do think that that is a very key uh, acquisition for one of those three companies we're talking about today, or if, if not, if not Amazon, of four. Uh, if whoever takes Netflix uh, and you know decides they, they want to spend 100 billion of cash on on Netflix or, or a little bit more than that. I, I believe is going to be probably the best positioned, just given the growth rate and what we've seen, uh, the movement towards Netflix in North America and worldwide over the last few years. I believe they'll be very well positioned to uh, win the content war, which ultimately right now I think will reign, reign supreme and, and be the, the driver uh, behind consumer decisions in the short term, at least. Interesting. Apple certainly has the war chest to spend on an acquisition <laughs> like that. They all, well, they all do. They all yeah, do. They, they all do. have. Uh, they're all sitting on a hundred plus billion of cash. So uh, it's uh, it should be a drop in the bucket for all of them. We'll see. Well, not one of the the front runners in this World War Four scenario, but an app that has roots in Vancouver, Slack, finally going public, uh, long rumored and expected to do so. Not having an IPO, though, they filed confidential paperwork and plan on going public down a different route. Ali, does it make sense for Slack to not go the sort of flashy, exciting IPO route and to do so a bit more quietly? 
I mean, I think it really just depends on their their motives as a business. It, it seems like this is more a decision to create liquidity for their for their company and the way the markets are right now. Uh, the public markets are, uh, you know, a little bit of a, in, in turmoil, and they have been since uh, November, December. I think we've had a little bit of a recovery here this last month, but overall, it's been a shaky last 12 months, I would say, uh, under the uh, with what all that's going on on a geopolitical level. So. Um, uh, it's probably a right, the right move right now if, if their intention is not to make a big splash and go and raise uh, several hundred million dollars, which it doesn't look like uh, they're they're trying to do, then they're probably making the right decision. Fly under the radar, get into the markets and wait for the right time and then do it. Fair enough. And Slack, it just had its five-year anniversary. It welcomed its 10 millionth customer. Linda, how is Slack doing from a competition standpoint? Because there's a lot of other similar products out there from even bigger players like Microsoft and Google. Yeah. And so Slack bought up a bunch to try to avoid uh, that particular issue. But Microsoft's taking a head-on attack uh, to Slack with their Teams product. Um, They didn't need the money in an IPO. They've got a big war chest. They are on playing as a venture capital to try to build products around their platform. So I think in terms of competition, they're well-placed with their uh, technical team, their user base, and their war chest to actually create and buy products that are going to go after any attack that a Microsoft might have on them. Um, but you know, their user base is very polar opposite almost to the type of user base a Microsoft person would be. You know, Slack's people are designers and innovators and creators and uh, sort of ground up early adopters where Microsoft generally aren't people like that. <laughs> people who use Microsoft are sort of not quite that sort of person. So I think they're doing okay. They clearly are well run. I love that they're not um, doing an IPO. They're saving money. Mm. Uh, they don't need the money. They're not going to dilute. They're going to let the market do what it does and um, let their investors get out and new investors come in. And I think it's at a very exciting time for them. And I think Butterfield's done a remarkable job navigating them to this point. You had a very delicate way of putting yes. that. When it a very com- Canadian way. Yes, a very Canadian way, for sure. Um, <laughs> there, It's kind of a war a bit between integrations. So if you go with a Microsoft or a Google, the products they have work really well with all the other products they have. Slack stands alone. It has compatibility, sure, but it, it's another option. Who wins that war? If they're looking for business partners, enterprise partners, that's where the money comes from. Is Slack going to maybe have to consider other routes that appeals to, you know, those big players who maybe are more apt to go to a Microsoft? Well, maybe, as Ali said, maybe it's like a Netflix situation in this in this new move with the direct placement. Um, maybe they get bought by Microsoft. Maybe they get bought by somebody else who wants to compete with Microsoft. Um, the integrations are key. That's how uh, enterprise companies and companies are using Slack so effectively. Um, but again, I believe they're very different users. I'm not sure mm-hmm. that, that Slack and Microsoft have a lot of overlap in their user base, even on the enterprise side. Mm. Our final story, Ali, I'm throwing this one to you because you're in Toronto. There's some exciting news in terms of transportation options. Birds, scooters are coming to the city. How excited are you? And how involved were you in that decision, Ali? Because yeah. I know you love I, this. I, <laughs> behind the scenes, there's a cold war happening in Toronto. And I was, <laughs> Um, no, it was, this is great news for the Toronto uh, uh, city, the city of Toronto, and, and just the tech scene here. It's another uh, another hot and upcoming tech play out of uh, Silicon Valley that um, is going to really disrupt the world. For those who have not heard of Bird, it's the scooter app. You tap your phone on a scooter. It's sitting on the sidewalk on the corner, and you ride your scooter around town, and they're electrically uh 
uh, powered, so uh, very easy to um, uh, check the battery and recharge the recharge the scooter and get yourself around in a very short period of time. It's something I hope uh, comes to Vancouver, although it rains a lot. I think uh, these scooters um, will make a big, big difference in the downtown core. It's, it's somewhere where, you know, I think everybody's uh, everybody struggled to get a cab and everyone has struggled for ride sharing over, over a decade now. So uh, hopefully there's not going to be as big a fuss for these scooters. Uh, they can get you around real quick. And Vancouver's temperatures are moderate enough where I think it makes a lot of sense for Vancouver. Toronto, I think, uh, you know, just being here now through this winter, I don't don't imagine people are going to be riding around on their scooters in the winter. But yeah. uh, definitely in the summer, it's going to be uh, a very hot uh, commodity around town, I'm sure. Yeah, I don't know what you do in the snow. But Linda, it does seem like a very Vancouver product. We have bike lanes. If maybe they open that up to scooters, it's kind of a greener mm. option. Seems like Absolutely. A good fit. And I think um, like I like the way Ali explained it to me a few months ago is that you can get across town on a scooter a lot faster than you can ride hailing or hopping in a taxi yeah. or using your car. So I like that option for Vancouver because this can be it's a small city, but it can be challenging to get from one place to the other if you're trying to cross it. And I think that for Vancouver with our bike lanes, there's going to be Perhaps if we're sticking with the war metaphor, there's going to be some wars between the scooter people and the bike people because uh, they're going to have to share those bike lanes. Uh, yeah. So maybe this, though, will get us more bike lanes if we get something like Bird. More bike lanes, I would like personally. We'll see. Could be coming soon. Could be a few years. <laughs> Only time will tell. Allie, you might, Linda. You might be able, you, you, you. <laughs> Might, I was just going to say you might be able to convert you might be able to convert me into a bike lane uh, person if oh. you bring birds over. Oh, that's what it'll take. Uh, uh, <laughs> a motor on your vehicle. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> All right, we're going to hold you to that. We're recording we are everything. Absolutely, even when you this to happens, <laughs> we'll be coming back to you. Thank you both for joining the show. As always, thank you. Thank, thank you. That's Linda Fawkes in studio with me in Vancouver, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society, and Ali Pordad in Toronto, CEO of Progressa. That's it for our show today. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to past episodes at BIV.com slash audio. And of course, find more business news at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.